I'm Forrest Brown, and you're listening to Stories for Earth. Welcome to Stories for Earth, a podcast about everything climate change and pop culture. Today, I'm thrilled to be sharing a conversation I had with author Julie Carrick Dalton back in February about her debut novel, Waiting for the Night Song. If you enjoyed Where the Crawdads Sing or anything by Barbara Kingsolver, Waiting for the Night Song will be right up your alley. The novel has caught the attention of cli-fi author Omar el and Burning World's columnist Amy Brady, and it was selected as an Amazon editor's pick following its release. Getting to interview Julie Carrick Dalton was a real treat, and I loved getting to hear more about the climate change themes in her novel straight from the source. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone who supports the show on Patreon. You can become a Patreon member for as little as $1 per month, or you can unlock perks like early access to new episodes, full-length unedited versions of interviews, and more. If a one-time donation is more your thing, you can donate what you think the show is worth through Venmo by sending a payment to at Stories for Earth in the Venmo app. Our website is storiesforearth.com, and you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Stories for Earth. We're also part of the Rewilding Our Stories Discord server, along with Lovis Geyer from the Ecofictology YouTube channel and Mary Woodbury from Dragonfly.eco. Discord is a lot like Slack, and this server specifically is a place for writers and readers to find resources and discussions about cli-fi and ecofiction. Anyone can join for free, so be sure to check out my invite link in the show notes if you're interested in joining the Ecofiction Party. One last thing, this is our second to last episode of Season 2. I'm taking a break for the summer to work on some personal writing projects, but I'll be back in the fall for Season 3. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Julie Carrick Dalton, author of Waiting for the Night Song. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Julie, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, Waiting for the Night Song. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, sure. Well, to start off, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I am a mother of four. I live in um, New England with my husband and the kids and two dogs. Uh, I grew up in Maryland, but I've been a New Englander for long enough that I fully count myself as a New Englander at this point. I'm a journalist and I also own and operate a small organic farm in addition to writing. Wow. So I'm busy. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun. Cool. Yeah. The organic farm, I'm sure is a lot of fun. Um, So I wanted to talk obviously about your book, um, Waiting for the Night Song. Um, I was kind of, when I was preparing for this interview, trying to figure out where to start, because there are so many like relevant themes in the book that um, are just very timely for today. Um, we talk about like racism. There's obviously a lot of talk about climate change. Um, there's a lot of talk about environmental racism too, which I really think is great. Um, so I just wanted to hear like what inspired you to write the book originally. Yeah, it didn't start out with all these big ideas in the story. The, um, this this image of little girls in a in a boat picking blueberries that was yeah. the the center of the story. And it's because I have kids, and I would take my kids blueberry picking by on a boat in a lake mm-hmm. in New Hampshire. And we would take blueberries from land. It was just these wide open stretches of land. And my kids started asking me if we were stealing them because they weren't (laughs) ours. And I mean, truthfully, they weren't ours, but there was just big open land. Mm -hmm. So I started making up these 
rules for when it was okay to take the blueberries, okay. which then became this code, which appears in the book. The kid, the kids in my book are mm -hmm. stealing blueberries and they make up a list of rules that they think justify when it's okay to take the blueberries. <laughs> so this central idea that mm -hmm. actually came out of a moment of bad parenting of trying to justify <laughs> these things to my children, you know, I, 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 it became this what if moment, like what if these kids took these rules and internalized them and turned it into something real, something mm -hmm. that they really truly believed in and how far would they go in the, in the story they end up using it to partially shield themselves yeah. from taking responsibility for a bad decision but so the central image it all grew up from there and I realized I needed Katie my main character to come mm -hmm. home as an adult and what was going to be different about home when she hadn't been home for several decades and so climate emerged first in the mm -hmm. story because the, the um there's some information in the story that is real like the temperature in new hampshire has gone up disproportionate yeah. to other parts of the country but if you look at new hampshire we don't look like a, a climate disaster zone you don't see mm -hmm. you know people running around screaming about climate change in new hampshire even though our temperature has gone up summer temperatures 4 degrees over a century oh wow so that's a really I mean, if you look at just these, that number, it's huge. So what yeah. I did is I had, the story is a dual timeline story. It goes back and yeah. forth between Katie's viewpoint at age 11 and when she's an adult. So I wanted to really dig into what would be different, not just in the environment, but in the mm -hmm. people and yeah. the community and the way they connect with each other. So I started researching all the things about this small, slow burning change in the climate in New Hampshire mm -hmm. and how it would affect different people in the community. And it affects everybody differently. Yeah. And I also realized you can't really look at, talk about climate in a silo. You know, you can't talk about the okay. climate crisis just in New Hampshire because it's not, it, it's, it's all connected. So these threads that you talk about, they yeah. all grew out of this idea of what are the impacts on a tiny town in the mountains of New Hampshire that we wouldn't expect and then I drew the lines out broader. I drew the lines down to the Caribbean where you know, there's deforestation to Central America yeah. resulting from US intervention in the 80s. So all those things came out of this image of what would be different mm -hmm. when someone came home decades later. I think that's great. Yeah, I think um, there aren't really a ton of stories about, like, as you said, like small mountain towns. I feel like places like that, they're like, oh, I'm not near the coast. Like I'm pretty insulated from the effects of climate change. Um, there's but like as you say everything is kind of interconnected and especially when you're talking about something as colossal as climate change uh tiny it's kind of like the butterfly effect i guess like tiny yeah. little changes you know thousands of miles away even can still impact you from there so yeah i think it's great that your book does that and i think it's also you know here i mean especially in the u.s but not mm -hmm. just in the u.s we have this kind of myopic view of climate change as yeah. something that's coming it's looming mm -hmm. we're preparing but it's kind of a privileged perspective if, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of places in the world that are already feeling it very deeply. There's yeah. the climate refugee situation all around the world to never, you know, we've never experienced this. So to, to, you know, sitting in a town in New Hampshire, it would be really easy to just say, it's not here yet. It's yeah. not us, not but problem. it is, it is us. It, you know, it's mm -hmm. all of us. And so that's why I tried to draw the, th draw the lines outside of this town in very real ways. These are not facts that I made up and the right. story is fiction, mm -hmm. but the lines I drew are very real. Cool. I love that. Yeah, well, um, speaking of the facts, you talk about, um, well, I guess Katie herself is an entomologist in the book, which I thought was a really cool way to approach this story or talk about climate, um, because I feel like nobody really thinks about bugs when they think about climate change um, or insects specifically. But 
Um, like, yeah, in the book, Katie is tracking the spread of these pine beetles that I think actually come from my neck of the woods um, down here in the south. When I was growing up, I don't know if it's, I was actually wanting to look it up since I started reading your book, but I remember when I was growing up, like we had a ton of problems with like pine beetles because we have a lot of uh, yellow pines here in Georgia and in Florida too. So, um, you know, like you'd see dead pine trees all the time when you're a kid. And I was, you know, when I was reading your book, um, your descriptions of what the trees look like after they've had a beetle infestation was just like spot on. Like it's, it, I was like, yeah, that is what it looks like because you would see dead trees with like the bark falling off and it would have these kind of like almost like spider webby patterns on them. And it was kind of pretty, but <laughs> it's also really, <laughs> really bad that it was happening. Um, so yeah, I, um, I guess I was just wondering if this was like an issue you were wanting to draw attention to, um, specifically the beetles, or I don't know if it was just like a way to talk about climate change. Well, um, that wasn't initially, she wasn't an entomologist in the initial, in the okay. first versions of the story. She, she was a journalist and that, it's because yeah. I'm a journalist. So mm -hmm. That was really easy for me to write. And I had her writing a story about these, you know, this beetle and tracking, you know, following a person doing the research. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a really astute writing instructor tell me, you know, you know, you've taken Katie too far away from the things she loves. As a little girl, Katie is very in tune with nature. She's yes. climbing trees, jumping off rocks in the water. She tastes nature. She mm -hmm. um, very much feels a part of the environment. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, I had her in an office writing on a computer. And that didn't, and my instructor was like, that is not who Katie would grow up to be. And I was mm -hmm. like, that's a great observation. So I, I put her in the woods you know, yeah. deep in the woods alone, because that's, I think, who Katie would have grown up to be, that little girl, that's who, what she would have done. Yeah. But as far as the specific beetle, um, it's a real beetle. The mountain pine bark beetle yep. is, um, there are a lot of different beetles that are attacking, um, you know, different regions of the country. And this okay. particular beetle is the one that's primarily responsible for a lot of the forest fires in California and Colorado. It yeah. goes in and during a drought, it, it moves in. It's very opportunistic. And it mm -hmm takes weakened pine trees and it cuts off the resin flow. So it basically starves the tree yeah. when it's already weak. And then a fire comes and it's just oh. all dry, dry wood in the forest. So we've seen a lot of that and they are moving east. It's in Canada. It is in parts of Southern, um, the Southern part of the United States now. So I don't know for a fact that it's in your region, but it, maybe it is, yeah. but it is not in New England. I took some fictional license and yeah. moved the beetle to New England. And the reason I chose to do that is I wanted there to be disbelief Okay. that the beetle was there. And I couldn't have disbelief if I put it in a region where we already okay. knew the beetle existed. Okay. But I did a lot of reading about the beetle um, and it's, there's a, some interesting conflicting ideas about it, which I, I explore in there mm -hmm. about different things. To, you know, how do you attack? I mean, how do you, you know, get ahead of these beetles? Mm -hmm. um, and different scientists have different viewpoints on what the best, you know, way to handle it is. But this beetle to me, it's so tiny and it, is so devastating to such a huge forest, but also it's kind of, it's, it's kind of beautiful. Yeah. The way that, um, you know, I talk about in the, in the book that the beetles burrow into the tree mm -hmm. and they burrow these little, it almost looks like, like carvings, like handwriting in a foreign language or something that yeah. the, the, what they leave behind, it's actually stunning. And um, mm -hmm. there's artwork that's been made out of this wood oh, um, just cool. to highlight that. In fact, I, in my house, the floorboards in my bedroom are not from this beetle, but it is a spalted wood from a different, from a maple tree that's been attacked by a different um, in, invader. Yeah. And I love that there is a beauty mm -hmm. in this destruction. Yeah. And that they're not the villain. They're just opportunistically 
trying to find a place to survive, a place yeah. to, you know, raise a family and find something to eat. Yeah. And just like we're all doing. Mm-hmm. And um, it just happens to be really destructive in the yeah. process. Gotcha. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And I think it's, I feel like I have seen some of the artwork maybe with the, like where you can see where the beetles were, but I have seen houses where the floorboards had that in too. And it's super cool looking. And I feel like it adds a lot of character to the house. And yeah. Um, yeah. So I wanted to circle back a little bit. I think you were talking about a little bit when we were starting out, but the poacher's code. Um, yeah. Yeah. When Katie and Daniela are first poaching their blueberries from their little rowboat. Um, I, it struck me when I was reading that I was like, this is kind of like, I mean, there are obviously some elements of it that are just kind of make-believe fun sort of things. Um, but also I was like, this is kind of like a, I guess like a sustainability kind of code or a pact in some ways. Did you have that in mind when you were writing that or yeah? Yeah. So that, that code, as I mentioned, was really the launching point for the story. Um, Mm -hmm. but the, so Katie is a little girl, she, you know, just, for you know, people who haven't read the book, yeah. she is this you know kind of a, a little eleven-year-old girl who just believes in magic everywhere. And I don't mean yeah. that she actually thinks there's magic going on, but she sees wonder and awe in mm-hmm. everything. She's always imagining an adventure, and she um, really, truly loves nature in a, in a way that's just like it's a part of who she is. She lives deep in the woods with her family, and she's yeah. always just running wild. And I grew up that way to a degree. I was in a suburban area. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I was not deep in the woods in New Hampshire, but she, um, you know, I was a kid who could leave the house in the morning and not come home till dinner and nobody would come looking for me. And my friends and I would play in the woods and we yeah. built so many forts and tree houses yeah. and splashed and, you know, so that was really real. And so Katie just, she loves nature and the idea of destroying something, mm-hmm. um, it just, it just feels intrinsically wrong to her. Yeah. So when the when they make this list of blueberries, I'm um, a list of rules for picking the blueberries. Mm-hmm. They they involve things like never killing an, a spider. Yeah. Um, and never taking all the berries from one bush. Don't pick berries if there's a bird's nest in the bush. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them are these very rudimentary conservation rules of protecting yeah. the what's there and not you know the do no harm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know not causing an impact on your environment although they're not consciously talking about that they are understanding the ramifications of act small actions yeah and there's a little almost like a parable in there that when mm-hmm. um daniela katie's best friend and her you know conspirator and stealing blueberries <laughs> yeah. um wants to kill a spider and katie freaks out with this idea that if you kill that spider you have no idea what the impact will be like what mm-hmm. if that spider had all these babies that had all these babies yeah. Yeah. and it's going to bite this one person one day and we're going to change everything so don't mm-hmm. kill the spider yeah. and that is kind of like the message of the whole story in a way of the whole book of do no harm and and think ethically and make good decisions because mm-hmm. you have no idea who your decisions are going to impact. Yeah. I remember that paragraph. I really love that. And I was like, I feel like she's going somewhere with this. I feel like this is going to be like a pretty big theme throughout the book. And yeah, I think I was right. But um, yeah, I love how you talk about um, how Katie has this, like how she you said, like she sees magic everywhere um, or like wonder. Um, I, I like kind of grew up like that, even though I grew up in the suburbs outside of Atlanta um, we had like, there was a bunch of undeveloped property that they were like building out the subdivision I grew up in. So it was just like woods and like my little neighborhood friends and me, we would, you know, we just spent like hours in the woods and like my parents would think we got lost and freak out and stuff. (laughs) Um, But we like, we'd be like playing in the Creek and stuff like that and just um, getting really messy and playing in the woods. But um, yeah, I, um, 
like, especially when I was younger, like, like when I would be reading books like The Hobbit and stuff like that, I, like my imagination would just kind of go wild and I'd be like, oh, like this is like a magical woodland or whatever. And yes, yeah. Yes. And you totally do like kind of have this, um, like you do kind of like see magic everywhere. At least I did when I was a kid. And so I really related to that when I was reading about Katie's doing that. But I'm wondering, like, is that something you think we lose when we get older? Or is that like something that has to be kind of nurtured? I'm curious to hear what you think about that. I, I do think we lose that. Um, and mm-hmm. so just a little background is that the relationship between Katie and Daniela was based very much on a real friendship I had okay. growing up of my my friend. It's not her. It's not based on things we actually did. But the mm-hmm. dynamics of the relationship um, mm-hmm. are very real. Um, that we used to just, uh, we were always out there. We had made up all these stories. I mean, we made yeah. up stories about, you know, escaped murderers hiding in the woods and we were tracking them. <laughs> we made up stories about, we used to play Charlie's Angels in the woods. Like, you know, yeah. I was I was always Sabrina, by the way. But I, you know, we always, we would just act out stories. I used to, um, I was always writing, even as a little kid, I used to write fan fiction scripts for TV shows. Yeah. Um, like Wonder <laughs> Woman and Morph and Mindy. And my friend and I would act these ridiculous scripts out. And we were just always in the woods, always doing like mm-hmm. imaginative, adventurous things. Although there wasn't any real adventure in our life. You know, we were making it up. Like I didn't mm-hmm. have, you know, I my, I did not witness a crime as the yeah. characters in my book do. I, you know, yeah. these things weren't real, but we, it, it is for the best, I think. <laughs> but but we, um, you know, we always saw the possibility that at any moment, a big adventure might happen. Like yeah. tomorrow, a murderer might come into the woods and we might catch him. You know, like yeah. we <laughs> had that. I truly believed that as a child. Like I honestly believed I, I my friend and I once tried to build a flying machine, which <laughs> was completely not aerodynamic at all. Yeah. Um, and, and but we believed we were pretty sure hmm. that at any point this thing was going to fly. Um, funny. So I think that we do lose that. Um, and you know, we get further away from nature in you know, a lot of respects as an adult, but we also don't see it the same way. Mm-hmm. We don't look at, we don't look at a, you know, a, a big swath of woods and think, you know, there's some mad, you know, fairies hiding in it, or, you know, yeah. we don't see that. We just see the, the beetles destroying the trees. Yeah. So, yeah. So I really wanted Katie actually as an adult to kind of reconnect to that. And I think she, through the, okay. in the story, she does a bit, she is, you know, just literally tasting the lake water. She you know, would, would ingest as a child, you know, she's trying to find her way back to that sense of wonder. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it, it's funny, like, I, I lived in Nashville for a long time, um, like, I think, like, seven years, and then when the pandemic hit, I moved back here to the Atlanta area, so now, like, like, on the weekend or something, when I'm out with my wife, while I go hiking and stuff to, like, a lot of the old places I went when I was a kid, I'll be like, oh, I remember seeing, like, that cave entrance or whatever and thinking, like, oh, like, trolls lived in there or something like that, so, yeah, that's funny. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's kind of, um, yeah, fun to go back and do that. Um, so, yeah, one of the things, shifting gears a little bit, one of the things I wanted to also talk about was, um, Katie as an adult, working as a scientist, um, I hope I'm not like giving away too many spoilers by saying this, but like kind of one of the central conflicts of the book is that she is doing research, um, I guess, kind of outside of her hometown in New Hampshire. And she's actually trespassing on federal property because she's um, like tracking the pine beetle up through there. And it's illegal for her to do that. But she's also like, this is too important. Like, it's worth it for me to break the law to do this. Um, But when she does go back to her hometown and tries to kind of like raise the alarm on like, oh, like this beetle has spread way further than we thought. Like it's posing a massive fire risk. There could be wildfires here. Like there were in California and Colorado. 
kind of the responses. I think like one of the firefighters says like, oh, like fires are job insurance for us. And people kind of just like scoff at her and don't really take her seriously. Um, and yeah, and Katie says, there's this quote that I had highlighted that I wanted to read. She said, um, we have to do something. I feel like I've been screaming fire in a theater and no one is running out. It's going to take a significant fire before people will believe how serious this is. Um, so when I read that, that really reminded me of Greta Thunberg and like the work that the youth like climate movement in Europe has been doing. They frequently say like our house is on fire and they feel like nobody's listening to us. Um, so like, I'm curious to hear what you think. Like, do you think it will take like a big fire metaphorically speaking for people to finally wake up to this? Like, are there some other things we could be doing? I mean, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that we yeah. people have been screaming fire for a long time. I mean, look at yeah. look at Houston right now. I mean, it's obviously mm -hmm. not fire; it's ice. Yeah. But but you know, people have been you know, right now. Everybody's in in Houston is talking about their energy grid and all these things, but the, mm -hmm. but they were ignoring it yep. until it crashed. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it takes, you know, people don't believe it or they don't want to see it and they put on blinders and, it, and yeah. ignore a problem until it, and unfortunately, until it's in their, you know, in their backyard. Yeah. And I think that's pretty typical. Um, and I think with Katie, the, the, the reason that storyline came in is um, while I was doing research for this book, I, I started uh, following all these entomologists and all these oh. entomology <laughs> groups online and like, yeah. you know, bug Twitter is amazing. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Insect <laughs> Twitter is just crawling with good information. Um, but so I, you know, just like eavesdrop on all these conversations mm -hmm. going on. And there was a conversation going on, um, with some entomologists talking about some land, federal land closing off research that had been going on for a long time. Oh, okay. And so even if, you know, say, I don't know, I don't know the, how the, the outcome of this is, specific situation, but even if now the land was open up, mm -hmm. there are years of missing data from that project right. that cannot be replaced. So, you know, they might have had 10 years worth of data on the specific research project. They miss three or four of them and then they can pick it up. But what happened in those three or four years will never be recovered. Yeah. And so there's a lot of that, that happened in a lot of, um, you know, a lot of different projects. And mm -hmm. so I, I, amped it up a bit in my book. You know, I took again, a little bit of fictional license and just yeah. made it like all federal lands that she was cut off from. Mm -hmm. um, basically to be jarring, you know, to yeah. jar people. Like if the government, you know, chose to cut off environmental research on federal land, what would that mean? And what's the danger? So I put mm -hmm. a very specific danger in that, in that land. Yeah. And so Katie, who is a very, you know, kind of, she's a loner. She lives alone. She works alone in the woods. She's very non-confrontational uh -huh. and doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to be a climate warrior. She just wants to find this bug. She's a yeah. scientist. You know, she wants to find this insect, prove she's right, head off a forest fire and then move on to the next insect, you know, yeah. our next, next forest or, but she becomes, they, she becomes a hashtag yeah. because she chooses to follow the science, not the politics. Yeah. And she goes in and does the research anyway, because she believes she, well, she knows that she's right. Mm -hmm. She knows that not doing her research will result most likely in a fire that okay. could hurt people or, you know, burn homes or all, you know, has a lot of ramifications. So yeah. to her, the moral imperative is clear, you know, mm -hmm. like, is it, you know, truth or politics? And she yeah. chooses truth. Um, and she goes in and does this anyway. Um, and so that it's a very real thing. And I, I, exaggerated things mm -hmm. in the book because, and also if you'll notice the book was never set in a specific year, which I did intentionally. Okay. Yeah. I didn't want it to be tied to a specific year, to a specific thing happening in the government, to a yeah. specific, 
year of drought Mm -hmm. or fire season. Like I wanted it to be floating, maybe just hovering in our future, but you know, it it is undefined because I wanted all of those things to be possible. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I hope that that, I hope I achieved that effect that it could happen at any minute and we need to be on alert. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It it reminded me a lot of like when the, um, the Trump administration like directed people in the EPA to scrub like the climate change page from the website. And I was encouraged to see that a lot of scientists like kind of stood up to that. And and a lot of times they were like, this is ridiculous. No, like we're not going to do that. That goes against everything we stand for. And uh, a lot of people like resigned and stuff. It was a pretty big deal, but so yeah, I it took a lot of inspiration yeah. from that. Actually, that was okay, not cool. specifically in the story, but it was the inspiration of the scientists standing up to government mm-hmm. that I wanted to, you know, just you know, channel into Katie. Yeah, yeah, I kind of was thinking about that when I read that, so I was wondering if that was uh, served as any kind of inspiration. Um, again, switching gears just a little bit, I wanted to talk about um, environmental racism as it's presented in your book. Um, and Katie has this friend, Daniela, whose um, family has immigrated from El Salvador, but they are undocumented, so they're they're illegally. Um, but we see, like, how, I guess this is all connected to climate change throughout the book, and especially my favorite ca- character, Sal, she kind of talks <laughs> about this, and it really kind of lays it out for Katie um, a little bit later in the book, about halfway through. But, yeah, so I, I wondered... Um, like if you would just talk a little bit more about like how your novel uh, discusses those topics and like how it, I guess, comes through in certain characters. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack on that topic. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't also wasn't, you know, when I started out the book, that wasn't like my goals to, mm-hmm. to put what I, when I, I again came back to those pieces of data about the, you know, our, the four degree rise in temperature in mm-hmm. the, our area and that our growing season is 22 days longer in New Hampshire than it was a century ago, which that's three weeks longer. And as, I know that because as a farmer, I've done research on my mm-hmm. growing area and everything. And, and so when I was trying to extrapolate all that data into like all the people it affect, I was like thinking really hard, who are the people who are going to be affected first? And as we know, in most cases, climate change or, you know, climate crisis events tend to affect uh, communities of color first, yeah. black and brown communities, indigenous communities, poor communities all over the world, not just here, but all over the world that are feeling the effects first. And it's in part because they might not have access to like mitigate, you know, climate mitigation efforts or to move to, yeah. to just leave that land or to, um, you know, maybe that's why these they were on this land in the first place because they were relegated to the most vulnerable places on the planet. Yeah. And so I feel like to tell a climate story and not address the communities that are feeling it first and worst would mm-hmm. be disingenuous, you know, and it's it wouldn't be a true story. So I was looking, and I also think that, you know, when you think of New Hampshire, you do not think of New Hampshire as a hotbed for immigration. Yeah. We, you know, we are, yeah, but immigration is everywhere. Yeah. The, sto- the town in my story, I made it up. It's a fictional town mm-hmm. and it's not meant to represent any specific town in New Hampshire. Yeah. I really, in my mind, think of it as like an any town, small town mm-hmm. that it, um, I think there's a lot of New Hampshire in it, obviously, because it's yeah. set there, but the dynamics of a community and the people in the community who's an outsider, who mm-hmm. belongs, is a question that you people grapple with in any town. Yeah. And cool. so in this specific situation, there are migrant farm workers all over our country, including in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. It might New Hampshire might not be the place you think of when I say, you right. know, migrant farm workers. But there are. And so I wanted to the care Daniela's family is in the story as 
full characters. They are not there to represent immigrants. You know, Danielle is Katie's best friend. She's her, you know, the the, the person she loves most mm-hmm. in, in, as a child and as an adult. It's the friendship she values most. And the characters, there's their backstories go back to when to the U.S. intervention in the in Central America in the yeah. 80s when we went in militarily, when our corporations went in and mm-hmm. agriculture. Do I mean the deforestation in El Salvador is shocking. I mean, there was, you know, 97 to 98% of the forests were were destroyed, which is, if you wrap your mind around that, that it's unconscionable that we did this. And obviously we're not responsible for every one of those trees. I'm sure lots of El Salvadoran farmers bought into this too, and also tore down the trees, but we, we set this thing in motion and it caused erosion um, of land, you know, of topsoil because we took all the trees down, which meant that the land wasn't holding water, which right. led to drought, crop failures, um, you know, agricultural crisis, uh, hunger, poverty, mm-hmm. and that leads to violence. Yep. And all these things that we're seeing playing out, I can't say that the United States is responsible for 100% of the problems. Well, so much of it yeah. is because of a thing we've set in motion. Totally. And so the book takes these stories from back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And makes them real for one family. Yeah, and then it you know follows the family, and then in the present day storyline, when Katie is an adult, mm-hmm. there are also immigration storyline in in that storyline as well. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's because it's it's a very real part of the tapestry of our life. We can't separate ourselves anymore, or we never should have. You know, we're all part of this story together. So when I was telling the story, it didn't. I didn't have a checklist. I'm going to write about environmental themes. I'm going to write about immigration. Yeah. It, it entered the story because it did not seem there was a a way I could tell this story mm-hmm. and lead parts of the community out because then it wouldn't be a full story of this town. And I yeah. really wanted the town to be represented from all angles. Yeah, I'm glad you did that too, because I feel like like a lot of the time, so many people don't understand like why we have sort of um, like such a huge immigration problem right now. Um, and I say problem, but you know, like it's a crisis. People are fleeing their homes because it's not safe and they're seeking a better life. But a lot of people like don't understand, like, why are you, you know, like if you're coming from Central America or from Mexico, maybe like, why are you like risking so much just to cross the border? And it's because of things like, um, like climate change, it was like a huge driver of it, maybe the primary driver of it. And I feel like, oh, that those dots just don't get connected for a lot of people. So I think it's cool that you chose to address it that way. Yeah, and another another little tiny thread that I um, drew is that in the title of the book, Waiting for the Night Song, it's mm-hmm. referring to a songbird. And it says, a little tiny bird, a very real bird called a Bicknell's yeah. thrush. Mm-hmm. And it lives in New Hampshire, in New, in New England and Canada. And it's this teeny tiny, very nondescript little gray bird that would fit in the palm of your hand. It would fly by you and you would never notice this bird. It's just <laughs> inconsequential. Mm-hmm. And but it's not inconsequential. And in my book and in real life, I didn't make this up. It migrates to the Caribbean every winter, but mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, it's habitats being destroyed yeah. partly by hurricanes and partly by deforestation mm-hmm. in, in the region. And so the little bird is not coming back to New England every year it comes back in smaller numbers. And yeah. um, because it's dying over the winter when it's habit, because it's habitats being destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to find all the, the ways that this little town in New Hampshire is connected to other parts of the world yeah. and how climate is related, like, you know, to El Salvador, mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to Caribbean and to this beetle that's come from the Rockies that mm-hmm. came and that there, there are so many moving parts in our ecosystem and that we're, as the world is changing and as temperatures are rising and different, you know, climate factors are, are changing, 
every, you know, if, when, when there's a hole in our ecosystem from a bird not coming back or something yeah. changes because of something moving in, we're, we're shifting constantly. Uh-huh. And to pretend that we're not is really short-sighted, you know, to, you know, we might not want an invasive beetle, but we need to know it's there. And we might not want to take responsibility for actions of our country, gen, you know, decades ago and, you know, in Central yeah. America, we need to own all these things mm-hmm. and look at the big picture. And so I think I was, you know, trying to tie all those little things up yeah. in a tiny town in New Hampshire that nobody would think about any of these things. <laughs> yeah, cool. I love that. Um, well, I was going to see if you wanted to read a passage from the book, actually. Um, sure. Did you have something in mind or do you want me to? to... Author's pick, whatever you want. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> I um, no, that's good. Great. I'll tell you one passage. I don't usually read this, but I feel like okay. in the context of our conversation, I think mm-hmm. this kind of makes sense. There's a, um, a scene in about two thirds of the way through the book where mm-hmm. Katie meets up with Piper. If you remember, Piper yes. is the grad student. She's a, a scientist studying birds, but also in, with a, you know, an eye towards climate crisis and how it's affecting the forest. Yeah. So she's studying the Bicknell's thrush. Katie studies the beetle mm. and some of the, and their worlds collide a little bit in that the, the some of the um, impacts of climate change are driving this little bird out mm. and bringing the beetle in. And so their territories um, overlap, but they okay. don't agree. Yeah. So I'm going to read just a, a couple paragraphs or like a page maybe okay. of when they first meet for the first, they've exchanged emails, but they've never met. So Kate, or, um, Piper is a young grad student and mm. um, uh, they're gonna, there's a, been a forest fire, not in the town where she lives, but nearby. And they're mm. meeting at the site of the forest fire after the fact to do research. Okay. Uh, um, okay. So Katie's walking to the forest. Beauty she had not anticipated saturated the light in the air. The fire had rendered the woods a negative x-ray of itself, stripped down to its most elemental and raw form, like a cast of dancers frozen in position. The absence of color quieted her mind like a drug as she walked through the stark, silent landscape. Air moved without the buffer of branches and leaves overhead. No one could hide in this scorched graveyard. It wasn't a forest anymore. It wasn't a fire, a refuge, or a home. In this half place, Katie's burdens felt lighter as if the gravity drawing them against her heart had been diminished. Chalky debris swirling in the air caught rays of sunlight. Katie blew into the cloud of particles and watched the ash dance. Vertical lines of the snag forest drew her eyes upward to the shocking blue of the sky. The sky she had left behind in Maplecrest had not seemed as blue. Katie walked toward a petite woman bent over examining a tree trunk. When she heard Katie's footsteps, she stood up. Katie recognized the shock of purple hair from outside the ethics committee meeting. You're Piper. Cadence Kessler, the woman dropped her bag and a compact chainsaw to run towards Katie. I'm so happy to finally meet you, like for real meet you. The smell of patchouli nearly gagged Katie as Piper pulled her into a hug. Everyone's talking about you. Have you seen the Cadence under fire hashtag? Did you do that? Katie asked. I won't confirm or deny that. I'm the one who emailed you about the Bicknell's thrush. Do you remember? I read the material you sent. It was well-researched. Piper beamed. She picked up the chainsaw. The university's going to take a lot of heat because what you did, you know. She swung the chainsaw back and forth as she talked. The government can sue the school, and it would set in motion a series of other challenges. You could end up in the Supreme Court. I don't think so. Sick Katie swallowed down the stomach acid creeping up her throat. It's not that big a deal. I just collected a few dead beetles. You could be the reason they open open the federal lands back up, Piper paused. Or I could go to jail and never work again, Katie said. So I'll stop there. Um, the two of them meeting sets a lot of things in motion for Katie because 
Piper has a different viewpoint. Katie wants to get ahead of the beetles yeah. and stop the infestation, thin the trees so the, there won't be more dead wood to burn. Mm -hmm. Piper says, let it burn. She's like, this is nature's way of rebalancing things mm -hmm. that the stronger trees will survive. And those trees are the ones that will repopulate the forest and we need a more resilient forest. Mm. So let it burn. So they have these two conflicting ideas. Yeah. And Katie walks into that forest in this passage set in her beliefs. Mm -hmm. Here's Piper's idea is very resistant to it. And then through the rest of the book, Piper's ideas start you know, getting in her head and she starts, you know, questioning her own judgment and, and considering some other viewpoints, which is a conversation I think is happening for real Yeah. between, you know, people who are studying this problem is, is get ahead of it to protect some houses or like let it burn. And that's yeah. a tough question. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I'm trying to like imagine like being in that situation, uh, trying to, you know, deal with that decision of like, do I just let this entire forest burn or do we try to like get ahead of it and actually cut it down? That's, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a hard question because yeah. big picture, you can make a really great case uh -huh. for why it makes sense to let let it burn. The the beetles will be burned when uh -huh. the forest burns. Yeah, yeah. And and that there there have been studies which I find really fascinating that so when a forest that's been infested by the mountain pine, pine bark beetle, mm -hmm. and it, it's killed off a lot of trees and then a drought situation and then it burns. They've done studies that the trees that survive the beetles mm -hmm. and the fire are more resistant to climate change. Uh, and so if those trees are only the only ones that survive, they have no competition from these other like weaker trees. Yeah. They repopulate the forest with stronger trees. That makes so much sense. Like there's mm -hmm. so much logic there, but, but what about the houses? What about the people and the businesses yeah. and the, the, just the, the, the danger of the fire. So there's these conflicting mm -hmm. needs, um, which I tried to play out. And then I don't answer the question. Like I don't say in the end, give you a nice answer of here's the solution. You know, it's yeah. still a question. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it'd be hard to like offer a concrete <laughs> solution. And I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to yeah. pretend I have the answer. <laughs> yeah, not like nature is so cool. <laughs> like, I yeah. just yeah, it's like um even when um and like again, neither of us are scientists. I could be totally wrong saying this, but like even in a situation like that where um it's like we've created this problem of climate change, like this is our fault, like we have to fix it. Like even when we're trying to fix it, it seems like we can still screw it up even worse. Yeah. Even though yeah, we are so good at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like mind blowing how um, I mean, I guess in every situation this doesn't happen, but in a lot of situations it seems like nature is pretty good at like course correcting and like um, you know, getting itself back to a state of um like where it was before maybe being yeah. a little bit more healthy. Um so yeah, when I was reading about Piper that really I mean, especially like when I was reading earlier about Sal, I was thinking about like youth climate activists, but then when I got to Piper, um, it was really kind of thinking about it. So um, I like young people have been doing a lot to kind of raise the alarm on the lack of climate action um, around the world. Um, I mentioned like European activists, but mm -hmm. like we've seen this all over the place. Like it's in India, it's in Africa, it's like here, um, um, especially among like indigenous communities. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, like, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot to unpack. A lot of people and like uh, activists themselves say like, it's like insane that we're the ones having to do this. Um, like we're the ones who are kind of getting screwed over in this situation. And yet we're the ones who are kind of having to act like the adults in the room, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just would kind of like to hear your thoughts on like youth climate activism and, you know, like what 
the adult response to that should be, I guess. Yeah, I am glad you brought Sal up because she is hands down my favorite character in the book. Like, it's I love such a Sal. Cool little kid. Yeah. Yeah. So for the reader, for listeners who haven't read it, Sal is um, a 13 year old girl. She's the daughter of Katie's best friend, Daniela. Yeah. And she has, um, she knows who she is. And what I, when I was writing, so a lot of it is I want to write the kid I wish I was when I was 13. You know, I want to write that. I want to write the kid who so fearlessly believes in, in the things she believes in that mm-hmm. she doesn't care. It's like she gets in trouble. There's a scene where she gets um, expelled from, or um, suspended from school for standing up for another kid. Now she mm-hmm. chooses to do it in a way that maybe wasn't the, the best way to do it. She yeah. jumps up on a teacher's desk and starts yelling and ends up breaking something. And, but she, her motives were really good, yeah. but she, she's passionate mm-hmm. and she lives her passions without a filter. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I think we see a lot with the, the youth activism is mm-hmm. they don't have this, you know, we have as adults have this filter of like how far we can go or not yeah. wanting to upset people or, you know, or, you know, mess up the system or, mm-hmm. you know, even if we believe something, we never act on it to the fullest. I shouldn't say never. There's a lot of people who do. So I don't want to lump everybody, yeah. but these youth it activists, harder, they, yeah. it, it, it's harder, but also the, 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 the youth activists are closer to that sense of wonder yeah. when they were children than we are. We are so removed and we have like, you know, taxes and like budgets and rent payment, you know, and <laughs> yeah. mortgages and stuff like that. The, the, mm-hmm. the kids like Sal, she, she's, um, you know, an, immigration activist she is a yeah. climate activist and she f- lives it 100 yeah. percent. she doesn't care about these she doesn't care about like in katie's case she's you know worried like oh my god what if i get arrested yeah so just she's like suspend me i don't care i'm not gonna sit here and take this you know yeah. so she she's the kid i wish i would have been you know mm-hmm. when i was 13 and i would would have been afraid <laughs> yeah i would have yeah. been afraid of like ridicule or afraid to stand up, you know, for something that other people might not agree with me on, or, Mm -hmm. you know, all these, these fears that you have when you're kids. And I just gave it all to Sal. Like I gave her all the power and all the, and the voice and um, confidence that, that just, I love her. If I could hang out with any character I've ever written, it would absolutely be Sal. Yeah, I know. I was like, dang, I don't think I'm cool enough to hang out with Sal though. (laughs) Me neither. And I made her up. (laughs) Yeah. All right, cool. Um, well, we're just about uh, coming up on an hour. So I was wondering, just like, if anybody reads your book, what do you hope they take away from it? What were, what was the main message you were trying to get across with this book? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess, you know, like this idea that I mentioned earlier about, um, you know, our actions having consequences, mm-hmm. um, from whether it's from killing a spider or, um, you know, stopping a forest fire, mm-hmm. that the all of our actions have unintended consequences, but most of them will never know what they are. Like a good example is this, um, you know, the bird, the the big mouse thrush Mm -hmm. that's, you know, endangered because of deforestation and uh, hurricanes in the Caribbean. Like that is not an obvious, you know, you know, consequence like we mm-hmm. wouldn't think about but that that little tiny bird is also like leaving a hole in the ecosystem in new hampshire yeah. and what does that mean for the forest so there's always a what every action or has a has a consequence mm-hmm. and we don't know what they are and we don't know who it's going to affect or when mm-hmm. just like with this situation with you know the intervention in the um in central america in the 80s yeah is having consequences in new hampshire in the present day yeah and so there, it's it's a mad, not a matter of like immediate consequences or consequences to your community or to a community you will ever know about. But yeah. like thinking about all the things we do somewhere, mm-hmm. sometime, somehow, there's going to be a consequence to every single thing we do. 
So I guess maybe I would leave you with that. Yeah, I think that's good. And I think that's, that's such an important one to focus on because I think like one thing that just continually freaks me out about climate change is that like things will happen and people will be like, yep, never saw that coming. Um, like, like when we were, you know, like worried about climate change, like people always talk about, you know, like sea level rise or forest fires or something, but nobody thinks like, oh, like the polar vortex is going to dip down into Texas and people are going to freeze to death in their homes. You know, like it's like pretty crazy stuff that you maybe would not have thought of. And I think that's, that's probably like a pretty hugely important lesson for people to learn is that, and to really um, internalize is that like, you have no idea, like that's why you should always be careful and respectful because you have no idea like what kind of like horrible consequences your actions could have later down the line. And that's not like to say you should just be constantly living in a state of fear, but um, I think- Well, there's a, there's a line in the book when the uh-huh. kids are little that when they're talking about killing us, that spider, like yeah. whether it is wrong to kill the spider. Mm-hmm. And I'm not remembering my exact words, but Katie says mm-hmm. something to the effect of, you know, Daniela wants to kill the spider and Katie doesn't want to yeah. kill the spider and Katie wins. And the reason she wins mm-hmm. is she says, I would rather yeah. cause something horrible to happen because I did something good mm-hmm. by saving the spider than cause a disaster because I did something selfish. Yeah. So Katie is imagining a disaster could happen if she killed the spider. And Danielle is imagining a disaster could happen if they don't kill the spider. Right. And Katie's like, oh, basically she's like, always come from a, a place of good. You know, yeah. if, if you make decisions based on good mm-hmm. and for good reasons, um, you know, it's, you can, you know, live with it better. And that's not to say that good intentions are enough. I mean, I don't mean to say that at all. That's never enough. Good intentions do not absolve you of, you know, your actions, but but just, you know, making choices based on good ethics Mm -hmm. is the best way, you know, to, to move forward, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I have that line highlighted in my copy of the book, my PDF copy. So yeah, (laughs) I thought that was fantastic. Cool. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end our discussion. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. Your book is amazing and I recommend people read it. Um, So yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. I loved, I loved your questions too. I, during these conversations, a lot of times we get, you know, I get questions about like the relationships sure. or, you know, the, the geography. And I love that we just really got to dig into the climate and, yeah. um, you know, immigration issues. So I thank you for your questions. Yeah, of course. That's really all we do on this podcast. That's so. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Cool. Thank you. Stories for Earth is written and produced by me, Forrest Brown. The music you heard in this episode is also by me. If you want to support further production of the show, you can do so by becoming a member on Patreon or by donating what you think the show is worth through Venmo. Just search at Stories for Earth in the Venmo app. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time.